So Parshas Mishpatim is a fascinating Parsha. It's a very different vibe than the previous Parshios. I did the math. This is the 18th Parsha in the Torah. And in the preceding 17 Parshios, you had a total of 41 mitzvos combined. In our Parsha, in the one Parsha Mishpatim, this Parsha alone, we have 53 mitzvos, and mitzvos that span the entire gamut of religious and ritualistic life. We have laws governing servants, both Jew and Gentile, a husband's marital responsibilities, how we're supposed to have a relationship with our parents, and personal injury laws, and homicide laws, and theft laws, and interpersonal damage laws, the justification of use of deadly force against home intruders, really interesting. The prohibition against oppressing converts, widows, and orphans, and the frightening consequences thereof. The requirement to provide to our brethren interest-free loans, various tithes, and the correct order in which they must be given. The parameters of Jewish jurisprudence, the mitzvah of Shabbos, and an enumeration of the three festivals, some of the laws of kosher. I feel like when you read our parsha, it's kind of like a tour throughout the Talmud. My father, he shall live and be well, told me that when he was a child growing up in Israel, they forced him, they forced the whole class to memorize the whole parsha. And the theory was that these verses are so critical. They appear in so many books of Talmud. It's so fundamental that if you know the verses, you know like the basis, you know the roots of many of the laws discussed in the Talmud. And as children, the kids resented it. Ah, they have to make me memorize all this. Ah, it's so hard to do. But then he told me that whenever he sees a verse in this parsha, he has this affinity to it. And he has this familiarity with it. And then when he studies the books of Talmud that relate to this parsha, he feels an intimate connection with these Torah sections, because he has such a strong, rooted basis in these Torah ideas. So that's the Parsha, well, that's the bulk, I would say, of the Parsha. It's it's myriad civil laws and criminal laws and interpersonal laws and ritual laws, all sorts of laws. But there's something in the Parsha that always struck me. At the end of the Parsha, after we go through all these laws, there are two other subjects that are discussed. First, it begins with a description of the conquest of Canaan. The nation is told that if you hearken to the angel that God will send to lead you, the conquest will go swimmingly, even though it won't be instantaneous. The Almighty will destroy your enemies. They'll flee. He'll employ swarms of hornets that fire projectiles of venom across the Jordan River into the eyes of the enemy, and the enemy occupiers will be vanquished and banished from the land. And those people, the seven Canaanite nations, were instructed not to make any peace accords with them, and our Parsha also delineates the borders of the land. So that's the next section, very unusual transition. We talk about all these laws of such rich, eclectic variety. And then we have a description of the conquest of Canaan, which, of course, the nations under the oppression is imminent. And then the final 18 verses of the Parsha take us back to Sinai, 
and to the Revelation, chapter 24, verse 1, we have a description of God telling Moshe and Aaron and Nadav and Avihu, the two sons of Aaron who were destined to be his successors, and the 70 elders of the nation to ascend the mountain and to bow from a distance, but only Moshe should go the full distance, only Moshe should go all the way up to the top of the mountain, and the nation should not ascend with him. And again, Moshe serves as a go-between between the nation and the Almighty. Again, Moshe engages in shuttle diplomacy, and he tells the nation all the words of God, and the nation responds with one voice, and they say, all the words that Hashem instructs, we will do, Na'aseh, we will do. And Moshe writes down the Torah from the beginning until the middle of the book of Exodus. And he reads from the Torah to the nation, and he erects an altar with 12 monuments, and they offer sacrifices, and he divides the blood, half of it, exactly half of it, is sprinkled upon the altar, and the other half is sprinkled upon the nation, and this forms the the blood of the covenant between the nation and the Almighty. And Moshe reads the Torah to the people, and again, the nation commits to obey to the entire Torah. And they have the famous line, one of the most iconic phrases in the Torah, the nation tells Moshe, Everything Hashem tells you, all the laws we will do and then we will listen, even before we know, even before we're instructed, even before we understand the details of what we're committing to, we are in. And Moshe throws the blood on the people, and Moshe and Aaron and his two sons and the 70 elders have a vision, and they see some sort of experience of God, and it appears like he's atop some sort of blue brickworks. Rashi tells us to show that he was suffering alongside the Jewish people when they were suffering with bricks in Egypt. And then we read how the elders and Nadav and Avihu, they actually did not fully appreciate the prophetic experience that they were witnessing and they were eating and drinking. And really God should have smote them right then but the Almighty waited until later to not dampen the experience. And now it's time for Moshe to ascend to heaven, to transcend to the other spheres of existence, and to receive the details of the Torah, to receive it all, to wrestle with angels and negotiate with angels, and to overcome angels in debate, and to actually take the Torah down from heaven on high. He's going to be spending... 40 days and 40 nights in heaven, studying with the Almighty and learning all the details of the Torah. And he appoints Aaron, his brother, and Hur, his nephew. And he tells them, you guys are in charge in my absence. And Moshe ascends the mountain. Joshua accompanies Moshe as far as he's allowed to go. And Moshe enters the mountain and ascends the mountain, and enters into the clouds, and spends 40 days and 40 nights with the Almighty. So this is a very dramatic departure of Moshe, and this is the next stage of the sign of revelation. It's not just God appearing on the mountain and revealing himself to the nation in prophecy, and conveying the Ten Commandments. Now Moshe is ascending to heaven, and he's going to get the Torah, 
and the luchos, the tablets, and all the details of the law. And he hands off responsibility to Aaron, to Hur, and we know this does not end exactly in the ideal way, because in Moshe's absence, the nation will do the grievous sin of the lone calf. And Hur, who was appointed by Moshe to oversee the nation in his absence, he tries to stop them and they kill him. And then Aaron capitulates, or so it appears. And the golden calf happens, and it's a terrible calamity and catastrophe. So that's the end of the parasha. Of course, we don't read about the golden calf for a few weeks. But it's always interesting to me, kind of the layout of the subjects of the parsha. At the end of last week's parsha, Parsha's Yisro, we had the sign of Revelation. The nation is at the foot of the mountain, and they're united as one. And Moses is going back and forth between God and the people to negotiate, so to speak, the terms. And the nation accepts. And the Almighty promises what is going to be the result of this covenant. And the nation experiences what no other people have experienced and lived to tell the tale. And right afterwards, we transition to all these laws, ritual laws, civil laws, criminal laws, laws of every type, interpersonal laws. And that's the bulk of our parsha. And then we read about the future, the conquest of Canaan and the details thereof. It's going to happen slowly, slowly. And then it goes back to the Sinai experience and ascending the mountain and the various different ceremonies and rituals and sacrifices that were brought. And again, we read about the acceptance, the reacceptance of the Torah. And Moshe ascends the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So it's almost like the narrative of Sinai, if we describe Sinai as the Almighty gave the Torah to the Jewish people, and Moshe being our representative to go extract the Torah from heaven on high, and the people accepting the terms of the deal. If that is what we call the Sinai experience in its totality, well, that narrative is interrupted by all sorts of laws, the Mishpatim, the laws, civil laws, criminal laws, etc. And the prophecy foretelling the future of the conquest of Canaan. And it makes you wonder, why do we have this unusual sandwich amidst, between the narratives of the Sinai Revelation, we have all these laws and this very unusual description of the conquest of Canaan. Whenever in the Torah we have a narrative that is interrupted, that's not contiguous, we have to ask the question as to why exactly it was interrupted. Now, it is true that not all the commentaries agree that the chronology is out of order. So when we say that the narrative is interrupted, it does not necessarily mean that the chronology is out of place. If you study the Torah with the commentaries of Rashi and Ramban, you'll notice that Ramban is always reticent to alter the chronology of the Torah. He's always going to favor saying that the Torah is written in chronological order. Even though the Talmud says explicitly that the Torah is not necessarily in chronological order, but unless the Ramban is forced to alter the chronology, he won't do it. Whereas Rashi, throughout the whole Torah, is much more liberal in interpreting the verse in a non-chronological way. That's not to mean that it's written out of order, 
It just means that the, the conceptual order, the, the topical logical flow, that is the primary way the Torah is written. Not necessarily the chronological flow that the Ramban favors. There's a pattern throughout the whole Torah. You know, is Jethro coming before or after the sign of Revelation? Rashi is very comfortable altering the chronology, even though the description of Jethro coming is before the sign of Revelation. He actually came afterwards. Oh, and when did the end of our parsha, 24, chapter 24, when did that happen? Rashi says, well, it actually happened before the events of chapter 20, the tabernacle and the golden calf how the descriptions of the instructions of the tabernacle and the descriptions of the implementation of those instructions are interrupted with the episode of the golden calf. Rashi says that the chronology was altered. Ramban says it was not. But regardless, whether the actual events were interrupted, as Ramban would hold, or the retelling of the events was interrupted as Rashi would Posit, we have to understand why. Why is the narrative flow so unexpected, so oblique? You have the sign of revelation, and you have the Ten Commandments, and then you have this long, rapid-fire series of laws, and then you have a prophecy about the future conquest of Canaan, slowly, slowly. And then you go back to Sinai. We will do and we will listen. The covenant and Moshe delegating authority and ascending to heaven. That seems to be going back to the sign of Revelation. What is the lesson in the unusual layout of events in the Sinai narrative? So I want to suggest an approach. I think this approach will reveal to us perhaps one of the benefits that we have of Torah. I think it will give us perhaps a newfound appreciation of how lucky we are, how fortunate we are to have the Almighty's Torah. Our parsha starts, The name of the parsha is Mishpatim. Mishpatim means laws. And these are the laws that you shall place before them. And Rashi notes that the word ve'ela is always connecting, and these, not these, and these. It's always connecting this to what came right before it. So, the end of Parshas Yisro, that's the Sinai revelation. The beginning of our Parsha is the Meshpatim, is the laws. Ve'ela connects the two, says Rashi. Just as the Ten Commandments were given at Sinai, so to the laws, the civil law and the criminal law, the interpersonal law and the ritual law, all the laws, they too were given at Sinai. Oh, and at the very end of Parshish Yisro, it talks about the altar. And why is there a juxtaposition between the altar in the tabernacle and subsequently the temple? Why does that come next to the laws? that are adjudicated by the courts. That's to tell you that the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, the seat of the judiciary that governs all these laws, that should be next to the altar. Where is the Supreme Court building, so to speak? In Jerusalem? It's in the marble chamber, which is one of the rooms in the temple. Why? Because the 
altar has to be next to the adjudication room for these mishpatim, for these laws. Two amazing and counterintuitive points in Rashi. First, we're told that the laws, the civil, criminal, ritualistic, interpersonal laws, all of them were given at Sinai. Even laws about theft and damages that every functioning society has, we have them as well. But they're not arbitrary laws. Our version of these laws are Sinaiatic. And the adjudication of these laws, it's done on temple grounds. This is the elevation of what we could call common law. Every country has a version of some of these laws. But the origin of these laws is from Sinai. And the adjudication of these laws are elevated, are holy, are right next to the altar. And that's how we start all these laws in our Parsha. And then we have a whole section about the settlement of the land. And the Mighty will appoint uh, an angel, maybe that's Moshe, maybe that's an actual angel, who's going to lead us. And if we listen to them, we hearken to them, we follow the Almighty, then the conquest will be smooth, and it will be seamless, and it will go swimmingly. But it won't happen overnight. The Settlement of the Land, chapter 23, verses 29 and 30. The banishment of the indigenous population. It's not going to happen in one year. It's not going to happen very quickly. Oh no, then the land may be desolate. And maybe there'll be a lot of animals in the land. Oh no, says the Almighty, I will banish them slowly, slowly. So you could grow into it. And only then can you, in fact settle the entire land. Another very counterintuitive point. The banishing of the enemies, it won't be overnight. It's going to happen slowly, slowly. A gradual shift. As we grow, as we expand our footprint, we slowly edge our enemies out. And this is a fascinating point. It's better to have your enemies there than to have a vacuum. You know, you would think these Canaanites were warned about them many times at the Torah. They pose an existential threat to the Jewish people. We're not allowed to make a pact with them, to make a treaty with them. They're very spiritually dangerous for us. And we would have all thought that to remove the menace right away, that would be preferable. But here we're told that slow and gradual change is ideal. And again, this is when we are listening to God. This is not a punishment. This is the ideal. Now, to make this even more interesting, we know that the Exodus, that was not gradual. That was all overnight, what we would call perhaps punctuated equilibrium. In one night, the Exodus happens. All the Jews are coalesced from all the corners of the land of Goshen and united as one. And the shift from being subjects of Pharaoh to being subjects of God is instantaneous. Yet somehow when it comes to Canaan, it has to happen very slowly, very gradual. 
And indeed, we know historically, the nation sparred with the various Canaanite tribes for centuries before the whole land was settled. The conquest was, in fact, very slow. And why, indeed, is disencumbering us from the Canaanites slowly, why is that preferable? Because we were too few, and we couldn't settle it sufficiently, and therefore the removal of the Canaanites will happen slowly. This is an astonishing point here. Having the Canaanites present in the land is better than the land being empty and desolate. The Canaanites, again, these are people regarding whom we're warned repeatedly in the Torah, we're barred from striking any accord with them. They are preferable than a vacuum. It's a fantastic idea here. Existing in a bad system is better than existing in no system at all. It's better than anarchy. That's how dangerous vacuums are. Keep the Canaanites around. That's better than anarchy and chaos. The mission tells us we should always pray for the well-being of a government, even a corrupt one. For without it, people will swallow each other up. The Canaanites must be cleared away slowly, slowly. It's better to have a hardened enemy, a villain that you need to be repeatedly warned about. Don't follow their ways. Don't strike a treaty with them. You have to get rid of them. It's better to have them around than to have no one. And therefore, they will be cleared away really slowly. I heard an incredible idea about two weeks ago's Parsha. Parsha's Peshalach starts, Vahi Peshalach Paro. It was when Pharaoh sent the nation. And many of the commentaries point out that the word Vayehi, our sages tell us, that is a term of sadness. That is a term of despondency. That is a term of mourning. Now, this is one of the highlights of all of human history. The Jewish people are finally being freed from their oppressors that they suffered under for hundreds of years. Why does the Torah use the term Vayihi? And it was, which our sages tell us was a term of sadness. So the Midrash says that Pharaoh was sad. He was sad that he had to send the nation because now God doesn't need him anymore. A very interesting and provocative Midrash. But I heard from my brother-in-law who said that he heard from Rabbi Stillerman that perhaps another interpretation of this verse is that the Jewish people were sad. How could you be sad when you're leaving? You're leaving Egypt. It should be a time of great joy. And of course, that's true. But there is an element of sadness. Because now they lost their system. They lost their routine. They lost their schedule. And even though they were freed from prison... There's something about prison that has an element of being better than a systemless life. And perhaps that's one of the messages here. Vahibu Shalach Paro, Rabbi Stillerman says. 
that it was when Pharaoh sent the nation and it was kind of a little bit problematic, a little bit of a painful time because of that freedom. When Pharaoh sent the nation, there was a twinge of pain because they lost a system. At the end of our parsha, Moshe leaves and he delegates authority to Aaron and to Hur. This is chapter 24, verse 14. And if you read this verse, you find something very interesting. Moshe is speaking to the elders. And he says, you guys stay here until we return. We mean Moshe and Joshua. And behold, here is Aaron and Hur. And whoever has a question that you would typically direct to me, they should go to Aaron and Hur. So you read this verse, and it sounds pretty benign. Moshe is doing the responsible thing. He's leaving. He's not going to be there for 40 days and 40 nights. He doesn't want to leave the nation without any leader. So he appoints a leader. In fact, two of them, Aaron and Hur. But if you read Rashi, Rashi notes that this was really an empty delegation. It was, it was a, was an office that was defanged of any power. Rashi says, when did Moshe do this? When he left the camp. And who did Moshe instruct? The elders. So who is not aware of the power and the authority of Aaron and Hur? The people. Moshe is not saying this amidst everyone. He's saying this when he's leaving the camp. And who is he saying this to? This investiture of power in the hands of Aaron and Hur. Who does he tell this to? Not to the nation, to the elders. And he also says that they have authority only when they are approached. Whoever has the case come to them. But they are not given the authority to go and initiate when something is amiss. So their jurisdiction, their their mandate was very narrow. It was only for interpersonal disputes and only when people came to them. Perhaps what Moshe should have done is, in front of the whole nation, in the middle of the camp, given them full power to also initiate when they see something wrong and also in every area, not just in interpersonal matters. You look at Rashi, the way he interprets this verse, it seems like Rashi's pointing out where the vacuum was created that allowed the conditions for the golden calf fiasco to happen. The reason why this debacle happened it's not because the replacements, Aaron and Hur, were inept, were ineffectual. But it's because their jurisdiction was not clearly asserted. There was a vacuum in leadership. There was, in effect, no one in charge. And that is the situation that nature abhors. Nature abhors a vacuum because all kinds of things will eventually fill that vacuum. The Talmud tells us, that Yiftach, who's one of the judges, 
but he wasn't uh, the standout judge. Yiftach, in his generation, must be viewed as Samuel, the greatest of the judges in his generation. Leadership, having a system, having someone that has authority, it's so important even if the individual office holder is not quite like the greatest person to hold that office. Listen, Yiftach, he ain't no Samuel. But in his generation, we have to treat him as if he was. Even if the leadership that we have, the system that we have is not ideal, it doesn't match Moshe's, it doesn't match Samuel's, it's important to not have a vacuum of leadership. Rashi tells us that the reason why the names of the 70 elders are not enumerated in the Torah is because the office is what matters. And the office holder must have sway. And even if they don't match the greatness, the character, the wisdom of the original 70 elders, nevertheless, they must be hearkened to. And that's why those 70 are anonymous. So I think we're learning something really interesting over here. And that is the danger of having a vacuum. And perhaps we can suggest that maybe one of the reasons why this is here, this is present now, is to tell us that one of the benefits that we have with Torah is that we're never in a vacuum. We're never rudderless. We're always able to draw guidance and direction from the Torah. We're never directionless. We're never aimless. We're never without a compass in big areas of life and in more minor ones, you know, the big picture, questions that gnaw at us, maybe gnaw at thinking people. What is this all about? You kind of wake up and you're on this... uh Blue rock, as they call it. And what's it all about? What are we living for? How did we end up over here? What should we aspire to? What's the point of it all? What happens after we die? What is the purpose of life? What is the reason of this existence? We have answers to all those existential questions. We have direction. We have guidance. We're never in this vacuum and we don't know what to do and there's no one in charge. And that's on the big scale, but also on the small scale. In every area of life, every juncture of the day, of the week, of the year, every turning point in life, we have guidance that we can rely upon. It's an amazing thing. We never have a vacuum. We always have a reliable system. And for millennia, this system of Sinai endured. And we have always been spared from the ravages of being in a vacuum, of being directionless. But it goes further. It's not just that we have laws. It's not just that we have the big picture. We could call that perhaps the Ten Commandments, which show us really what it's all about. I am the Lord your God. And the whole Ten Commandments really serve as the digest of what life is all about, the abstract of what it's all about. It's all about faith. It's all about developing a connection with the Almighty, with our eternal spiritual selves. And it's not just the details that in every area of life we have law. These laws, 
are not only comprehensive, they're divine. They're from Sinai. The seat of the Sanhedrin of the Supreme Court is in the house of God. We have both a comprehensive and an authoritative guide for living. And this may sound simplistic, and I think it's something we probably take for granted. But imagine what it's like to live if you don't have answers to these questions, if you don't have a system of living, a system, a worldview, an understanding of what it's all about. Think about how terrifying that might be. And yes, it's something we take for granted, but it's important for us to appreciate it. So perhaps this is the reason why, right in the middle of the description of the beginning of Torah, right in the the middle of the Sinai revelation and that narrative and the various halves of that narrative, we're told a few important lessons. We're told about the dangers of a vacuum. And that's a system, or a lack of a system, that we thenceforth will never be in. We will always have direction in life both in the big picture and in the small picture. We always have a framework that's unshakably stable. Again, I think this is an underappreciated element of the value of Torah. We live in a stable system. We have guidance. We have direction. We understand what we're here to do. And yes, of course, that still makes... Demands upon us. We still have a fearsome Yetzirah and our work is really cut out for us. And of course, this is not to say that life is supposed to be robotic. It's not supposed to be stuffy where we, we just behave as if we're following a manual and we become little clones. Of course not. There's room for creativity and individuality. You know, one of the subjects that we discuss, we emphasize most on the Parsha Podcast, I think, is how each one of us have to carve our own spiritual identity and develop our own spiritual and personal independent potential. Aristotle tells us that each one of the 600,000 participants at the sign of Revelation, they had their own bespoke experience. The Torah was not given to angels or to robots. We do have to find our own little corner, but we have to adjust within the framework. We have to adjust within the system. Rav Hirsch used to say that Jewish life is almost like one of the corners, one of the fringes of the tzitzis. If you look at a tzitzis, it has a series of knots bound together. And then it has eight streams that come out of those knots. Part of our life is is like the knots. It's grounded, it's immovable, it's fixed, it's rigid. That's the system. But then there's the streams that sway about in every direction and can be reconfigured and can fly in this direction or that direction. And that is the area of individuality that when it's grounded in that system, when it's rooted in that immovable system, it can really flourish and develop. 
So I think this is, again, an underappreciated element of the Torah. It's almost like, you know, to, to live in a country that has runaway inflation. That's in the news today. You know, we don't have anything really like real inflation, like they had in Argentina or Zimbabwe or uh, Germany in the 20s, where your money would be worth half by afternoon of what it was in the morning. That's a crazy way to live because a central part of your life is just not stable. It's important to have a system. It's important to have a system. And Torah is giving us a system. We have the Ten Commandments. And that's a template for life. And what does it start off with? I am the Lord your God. That is the framework in which everything is built in. The Talmud tells us that really all of Torah is in this one framework, this one mitzvah of faith. And then on a kind of bigger picture, if we zoom out a little bit, we see that the Ten Commandments in general are a digest of life. It starts with faith, it ends with faith. Of course, as we mentioned in the past, not to covet is a reflection of real faith. And at the end of our parsha, again we talk about the big picture. Moshe goes to heaven and we read about the notion of the existence and the interplay of these two worlds, the whole idea of Moshe being able to ascend to heaven to this other realm, this other sphere of existence, and to receive the Torah from the Almighty, that too is part of the big picture of this structure, of this system. And in the middle, we're given lessons to appreciate this incredible gift that we have. We're shown the dangers of a systemless existence. We're shown how crucial a system is that even a bad system is preferable to no system. We're shown how our life is guided and directed by God via his Torah. And I think it's a great testament to the wonders of Torah that we are still today, 3,300 plus years later, we're still living and we're still flourishing within the system of Sinai. We'd like to end off our Parsha practice with a question. And just because this week is fundraising week, yeah, we might do two weeks of fundraising as well. But just because this time of the year is fundraising time, doesn't mean that we should get rid of this question. This question is really important. So here's the question, very fascinating question. If you read the Sinai narratives, you find multiple acceptances of the Torah. Chapter 19, verse 8, before the sign of Revelation, the nation tells Moshe, Go tell the Almighty that whatever he wants, we will do. Na'aseh. That was 19.8. Again, we have a very similar statement. The people tell Moshe, Kol Hashem na'aseh. All the words that the Almighty said, we will do. So we had, we will do in 19.8. We will do again in 24.3. And then a few verses later, the most famous one of these Acceptances, 24-7, Moshe, after he reads the Torah, or the beginning of the Torah, in the ears of the people, they say, Everything that Hashem says, we will 
do and we will listen. So what do we make of this multiple different acceptances of Torah? You should do it once. And that's it. The people need to agree to Torah, of course. They have to sign the line that is dotted, of course. But do it once. And that's it. Why is there a need to do it once and then twice and then a third time? Interesting question. And I saw two exquisite answers I want to share with you today. The Gona Vilna he says that, well, actually, the nation accepted the Torah four times, or there were four different acceptances of Torah. At the splitting of the sea, the nation in chapter 15, verses 2, and then again in 18, the nation accepts the dominion of God. A fascinating idea. Before you accept Torah, you have to accept the notion of God. You have to Accept the terms of faith. And that was the first acceptance of the nation, but that was not enough. It's not enough to accept the notion of God's dominion, that he's your king. You have to also accept the concept of Torah in general. He calls it the yoke of Torah. So chapter 19, verse 8, we will do, we accept whatever he instructs us to do. But that's not sufficient. You need 24-3 to accept the mitzvos. We accept his laws, all the commandments, all the details. And even that's not sufficient. We will do and we will listen. We accept the oral Torah as well as the written Torah. We will do and we're going to listen because some parts of this are going to be conveyed to us orally. So I like this very much because it resolves the seeming repetitions of this theme of the acceptance of the Torah, the Gona Vilna spells this out for us. There are actually four distinct tenets that the nation is accepting. A, the dominion of God. B, the yoke of Torah. C, the yoke of mitzvos. And D, the oral Torah. That's a very nice idea. But the Meshachachma has a very clever formulation. We know that there are mitzvos in the Torah that are unfulfillable. Why? Because to be a legitimate king, you have to be from the tribe of Judah. And there are mitzvahs that are only applicable to the tribe of Judah, to the kings of Judah. And there are mitzvahs that are only applicable to the Kohen. And a Kohen's got to be from the tribe of Levi. So it's not possible for any single person to fulfill all the mitzvahs of the Torah. So if we cannot fulfill the mitzvahs of the Torah, how is it supposed to work? It's a very famous question. How are we supposed to fulfill the mitzvahs of the Torah when it's not possible for a single person to fulfill all of them themselves? This is a famous question, and there are a variety of answers. But he presents two different answers, and he connects those answers to the various acceptances of Torah. The first idea he says is that, well, actually... A single person can fulfill the whole Torah. Because a single person is one of the best descriptions of the Jewish nation. We're like one person with one heart, with one purpose. When the Talmud is looking for a metaphor to describe revenge, it describes a butcher 
hacking away at a slab of meat. By mistake, his right hand slashes his left hand. The left hand is now wounded and mad. So it picks up the cleaver and slashes the right hand in revenge. That is the metaphor of revenge. Why? Because the Jewish nation, we're like one body. We don't realize it necessarily. But in our idealized state, we're really one person. And part of the person, if you could call it that, is like the heart. Part of it's like the eyes. Part of it's like the head. Part of it's like the heels. We know that Messiah comes. The generation right before Messiah is called the heels of Messiah because it's the lowest souls of the nation. Souls spelled S-O-U-L, not S-O-L-E. And there are parts of this one big organism, one big body, that's a Cohen, and parts that's like a king and a Levi, etc. And if everyone does the mitzvahs that they can do, then one person, one body, one entity, the Jewish person, can fulfill the whole Torah. But there is a necessary precondition for this to be true. This is all predicated on complete, indivisible unity. You'll notice, right before Sinai, chapter 19, verse 8, the verse says, Vayanukolam yachtav, the entire nation said, together, the whole nation was united as one before Sinai. And there's the famous Rashi. Right before Sinai, chapter 19, Rashi says they were like one person with one heart. What happens when the Jewish people are like one person with one heart? In that case, we could all do, everyone does their mitzvah, and everyone gets the benefits, the merits of their friend, of their partner, of their fellow limb, if you wills, mitzvah. He quotes a magnificent verse. This is the Meshachachma. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 31. Adam Atem, you are one person. The whole nation is like one person. Some are like the heart. Some are like the eyes. Some are like the head. But together, if we are united, all we need to do is to do But what happens if we don't quite have that same unity? After Sinai, we didn't quite have that same indivisible bond that we had pre-Sinai. And then it says, We will do and we will listen. Because if we're not connected as one, then the only way for us to receive the rest of the Torah, the rest of the mitzvahs that we cannot fulfill, some we could fulfill, But some, we have to listen. And what does that mean? When you study Torah, you gain the merit of that mitzvah. So today we cannot offer a sacrifice. But if I study the laws of the sacrifice, the Talmud tells us, I gain the merit of that sacrifice. And all the mitzvahs that we cannot fulfill by studying the corresponding Torah sections, we get the merit as if we fulfilled it. And that's why after Sinai, once the nation is no longer united as one, 
It says, Na'asev and Ishma, we will do and we will listen because doing is not sufficient because once we're detached from each other, each one is their own little island. God forbid. If we break away from this wonderful unity that we had pre-Sinai, then we need to listen as well. And then we need to study Torah as well. And he says one more thing that I have to say because it's so wonderfully fitting for our fundraiser at givetorch.org. If you don't fulfill all the mitzvahs, you're in big trouble. If you just do, there are parts they'll need to listen to. He doesn't say podcasts because this book was written like a hundred years ago before podcasts were invented. But he says, if you do support Torah and those who study Torah, then you also get the merit of all the Torah that they study and they teach and that they disseminate. And that too could be a fulfillment of Vinishma, we will listen. And thus you plug in the gaps of what you are missing. What an incredible idea. The big idea first. We're told multiple acceptances of Torah because there are multiple instances that we need to accept Torah. When we are completely united as we were before Sinai, it's enough for us to say we will do. Everyone does what they need to do and everyone gets the merits of what they cannot do, what their neighbor did. Because their neighbor, that's just an extension of them. Well, we're not united. We have to do what's incumbent upon us to do and what we cannot do, we have to make up for it. How do we do that? And we study or we pay others to do so, or we fund others doing so. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we'll talk again next week.